Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today, we are continuing our mini-series on maritime China. Our first episode was on the great 15th century explorer Zheng He, court eunuch and Muslim who travelled the world in mighty treasure fleets, leaving an extraordinary legacy which still lingers to this day. And it's a story that remains unsettled in the eyes of historians. Some believe he did it, and some don't. And it's a story that remains unsettled in the eyes of historians. To balance that, in episode two, I looked for some concrete physical evidence, well, not concrete, more timber, of Chinese trade throughout Southeast Asia and explored the medieval Chinese wrecks which have been discovered and excavated in those seas and what they tell us about Chinese trade. Today, we're jumping forward in time and looking at something rather fabulous. In the collections of the London Science Museum is a group of ship models of Chinese junks. These were commissioned by a chap called Sir Frederick Mays, who worked as the Inspector General of the Chinese Maritime Customs Service from 1929 to 1943. Mays was a true and was particularly fascinated by maritime history. And he lived at a time of rapid modernisation in China, when he could see Chinese maritime traditions disappearing in front of his eyes. So he decided to do something about it, and he commissioned a series of ship models of Chinese junks and sampans to be built in Hong Kong and Shanghai by expert Chinese shipwrights. These were subsequently donated to the London Science Museum in 1938, and what a collection they are. They demonstrate the stunning variety of Chinese shipbuilding traditions and technology and the details of daily life, down to religious beliefs of the sailors. To find out more, I spoke with Donna Brunero at the National University of Singapore. She is an expert on the maritime realm and port cities of Asia. She has a particular interest in Britons and other Westerners who had careers in the British Empire in Asia. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I enjoyed talking with her. Here is the deeply knowledgeable Donna. Donna, thank you very much indeed for joining me this morning. Sam, it's a pleasure. 
I should say you're in Singapore, so it's actually in the afternoon for you, as you've already you've already corrected me. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about your work. Um, it being based in Singapore, very interesting. Okay, well, I've been based in Singapore for quite some time now, so uh, close to eighteen years, um, and my work. It originally was really looking at the British and the Chinese Maritime Customs Service, so very much um, sort of edges of empire as a way of thinking about it and thinking about British empire in Asia. Uh, over time, I've shifted my focus to be a bit more uh, maritime history and realizing that being based in Singapore, you're often looking at ports, port cities, uh, shipping companies. So my work keeps evolving and developing, but the maritime angle has become a lot stronger. That's what we want to hear. That's tremendous stuff. Now, you mentioned the Chinese Maritime Customs Service. This is going to be a, a pretty important part of what we're going to talk about. So why don't you tell us about that? What was it? Why was it important? Oh, well, I, the Customs Service, uh, so the Chinese Maritime Customs Service was created in the mid-1800s. So it's very much a cornerstone of what we could see as the treaty port system. So essentially, it was created by foreign powers, uh, the British as one of those main powers, um, at a time at which it was sort of seen that China could not manage its trade. And there was um, upheaval, the Taiping Rebellion, for instance. So it became a modern customs administration to handle China's foreign trade. Uh, in essence, the customs service, it operates from the 1850s right through to the 1940s. In essence, it's a Chinese institution, but all the top echelons are foreigners. It's actually quite cosmopolitan, and it's headed by Britons, essentially. So it's it's a really large institution that goes on to not only cover customs, but the lighthouse service, conservancy, uh, anti-smuggling. Um, so it really covers a whole host of different tasks and roles. And this is something where we think about this institution as being one of the institutions that really modernised China. Mm, that's interesting. Let's just go back a little bit and talk about the treaty port system, because you mentioned that, and that's fundamental to understanding the maritime history of China in this period. Tell us about the treaty port system. Okay, if we want to think about the treaty port system, one way we could think about it is very much that it is an unequal uh, series of treaties. And this comes out of the era of gunboat diplomacy and opium is one way we can think about this, the opium wars. And basically, um, China is forced to agree to have foreigners both residing and able to operate business at a, a number of ports on the China coast, and these become the treaty ports. So there's about five ports that are initially opened, but over time this expands to become a whole network of ports. So along the coast, so Shanghai being one of the, the main ports, over time, you have riverine ports as well, so it becomes a massive network, which is basically forcibly open to foreign trade and residents. And did the um, Europeans have much impact on the development of those cities? I mean, I, I ask this as a bit of a, an obvious question, but um, I was recently in Shanghai, and one of the things that uh, I loved were the French plane trees. And um, they've been planted all the way through the French concession, and so you have a, a very... Um, uh, a green, surprisingly green city for a modern Chinese city. Tell us a little about how these ports developed with European influence. Okay, I think one of the ways that we think about these ports is quite often that they do become these meeting places of East and West, and quite often they're really romanticised as, you know, uh, bringing out, you know, sort of the the best and worst of, of these two elements. Um, architecturally, you see quite... Um, uh, 
a dramatic imprint, actually. So the waterfront, the, the Bund, if we think about it, becomes the most prestigious place for a business or something, you know, like a bank, like a Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation, to have their main premises. So the waterfront becomes really significant. And this is where you see the Western architecture. Um, you'll also see it through residential enclaves. And you mentioned the French. So the French concessions, particularly in Shanghai, were like the place that uh, all the foreigners would want to live. Um, the British, there was an international settlement, essentially. Um, the British, Americans and others actually sort of combined their settlement area. And this became known as the international concessions. But again, the architecture was quite Western. Um, and this is where you have the first department stores, you have the, the clubs, the bars, the cabarets that the treaty port world becomes known for. And we sort of see that if you think about popular culture, there's a lot of film that captures that whole idea of old Shanghai, um, this idea of the sort of glamorous uh, East meets West type of um, world which uh, residents would inhabit. Yeah. So let's move on to Sir Frederick Mays, because he's an important character in this, and it's where we're going to um, get to his collection of junks. Tell us about Sir Frederick Mays. Sir Frederick Mays is, I would say, a really interesting character, and I spent a long time trying to understand the way that he operates uh, and and his administration of the customs service. So he, he's born in Belfast. His uncle was uh, Sir Robert Hart, who is the famed... IG in Peking, who was basically the famed figure of the, the customs service. So Mays is very much following his uncle into service uh, in China. And so by the 1890s, he's already uh, working within the customs service. Uh, he tends to be accelerated through the service fairly quickly and then taking on um, assistant commissioner and then commissioner roles. Um, Mays comes to uh, lead the customs service at a really important juncture for the customs administration because this is when the Chinese nationalists have unified or nominally unified China, so in the late 1920s. And Mays is seen as a very political figure in some ways because he aligns the customs service in such a way that would allow the customs service to continue to operate, um, but for many British observers, they felt that he was sort of selling out the British interests within this administration, that he was being too pro-Chinese or too pro-nationalist with his approach. So he wasn't an incredibly popular figure. Uh, when he came into his role as Inspector General, there, there was some discussion, you find it in the customs documents, that he'd actually been shunned within social circles or turned down for invites and, you know, that he, he was someone that people saw as just far too political and thinking about his own interests rather than what were perceived as British interests within the service itself. So that's that's a bit about Mays. He's a bit of a difficult personality or the way that he comes across in a lot of his documents. Yeah. He's certainly someone who was interested in maritime history. Now, that's um, not necessarily an assumption. You do get lots of people working in the maritime world, whether it's in the Navy or the Merchant Navy or the Customs like this. He, you suspect they might have been interested in maritime history, but often aren't. But he definitely was. And that's why we're interested in him today. And he's particularly interested in um, uh, traditional Chinese seafaring. How does he go about exploring that interest? Ah, uh, yes, you're right. He he does have a real interest in maritime history and maritime studies. And you're right. Uh, he has this interest in 
Chinese shipping, what he sees as traditional uh, shipping. And it's at the point that he becomes Inspector General that he then launches what is a fairly large project to document uh, traditional Chinese junks. And part of his reason for doing this was his belief that this type of shipping, so whether it was riverine craft or whether it was um, ocean-going or coastal vessels, he believed that they were being, um, that these vessels were being phased out by the steamship. And his, when you read his correspondence about this, his feeling is that the Chinese authorities aren't interested and that he had this mission and there's almost a romance attached to it this whole idea of saving Chinese shipping and documenting it and so what he does is he sends out directives to a number of his staff and he basically commissions them to undertake what would be a privately funded projects so he funds these projects to research particular ships uh, and to try and ascertain if models could be built and he is really um quite obsessive about the models must be accurate piece by piece, uh, plank by plank, and he wants them to scale and with blueprints prepared. And so a lot of his subordinates are running around different ports, speaking to shipbuilders and seeing, can it be made, but can it be accurate? Because otherwise, May simply doesn't want to support these projects. So his idea is to build a collection of models that would help preserve and document traditional ships. It's fascinating. Isn't he supposed to be doing his actual job <laughs> and all of his other people? I mean, where, where what, are they doing it in their spare time, do we think? They're pretty much doing it in their spare time. You're right. They are pretty much doing it in their spare time. So, you see, this is how I sort of came into this topic. I was really looking at Mays and his role as a leader. And I found when I was reading his documents, there was a lot of discussion about these ships' models. And he had staff who were on leave. So they're meant to be in China. They're on home leave. So they're back in London. And he has them going to check how his models, you know, do have they arrived at the Science Museum? Because this is where he was gifting these models. What is the state of the cabinet? Are you satisfied with the, the way it's being displayed? And getting them to report back in their spare time. So this sort of comes up. And it also comes up in some of his correspondence where his uh, subordinates are saying, you'll be very pleased with the progress of this model. And then they make a comment about where they've been posted to. And he basically just ignores that. So there is no chance of any leverage. You're doing this and uh, it's acknowledged that it is over and above your normal duties. But certainly it wasn't anything that you could then leverage for a better posting, for instance. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We should talk about the models themselves. Um, I should say that I've um, I've seen some of them, sort of. <laughs> um, they are in the um, uh, collections area of the Science Museum, which is in a disused airfield outside Swindon. And um, all of the models that aren't on display in the Science Museum up in London are brought back to this extraordinary, extraordinary place, an enormous warehouse full of the most wonderful things. I saw all of um, Stephen Hawking's wheelchairs. I saw the nose cone of Concord. And next to it were these models. And they're in a kind of a timber frame case with a sort of milky white plastic covering them so you can you get a kind of ghostly sense of what's behind them but um you can't unless you organize to have them removed from the cases to see them in detail um the first thing that struck me is that some of them are absolutely enormous oh yes i think that was something that maze was actually quite proud of i mean because these models had to literally be shipped and then the cabinets the cabinets were made i think many of the cabinets were actually made in china and then brought and assembled for the ships as well but he was quite proud of the size because these were also some of the largest models because i think some are about six foot others are a little bit bigger again i did actually Mm. see the models when they were still on display in the science museum so it tells you how long ago i was working on this but i was fortunate to be able to walk around and look at them and some of them were actually mounted sort of up almost above your head so visitors were almost walking underneath them and I agree with you. The cabinets, I felt, were pretty unremarkable and that if you didn't have any sense of this collection, you would just walk past it because I felt there was no real sort of exposition. There's just a mention of, say, for instance, um, Sujo fishing junk, and there's nothing else. And it's like, so what? what is this custom service? Why is it gifted by Sir Frederick Mays? How does this fit? And there's nothing about the people. There's nothing about the shipbuilders. Really, they felt like they didn't have a lot of context. Um, but this was yeah. Mazer's big um, project, and it took um, close to a decade. And it's the late 1930s that he gifts, um, and it's 10 models. So he gifts uh, 10 models to the Science Museum. And then there's big fanfare. There is a newspaper article. I think it's the Illustrated London uh, News has, has a two-page spread talking about these models as a picturesque and ancient craft, something something like this. The phrasing is actually, and they're talking about, you know, the way that they're doomed to extinction, and yet they've been gifted to Britain to preserve within the museum. Yeah. D- tell us about, do we know anything about the people who made the models? We know very little, actually. And this is one thing that really surprised me. Maze is far more concerned about the accuracy. So there are some details. The details are more... Um, where the the shipyards that that made the models not so much the craftsmen and there's nothing really about the communities who would have used these types of vessels in their daily lives for instance yeah i did i did ask um some sort of former customs people about this and part of the response i got was that well actually given Frederick Mays and that he was Inspector General of the Customs, he would have seen it as a bit beneath himself to be on board these ships. So he would have sent his staff, and particularly the staff in the outdoor service who were boarding ships and inspecting ships, for instance, he would send them to do this. Um, Generally, the response was that, oh, Frederick Mays just simply wouldn't have done that type of uh, direct sort of research himself. It was very much about directing sending invoices but very little about speaking to craftsmen or even the communities that actually had an interest in these vessels 
but we know they were built by Chinese workmen in Chinese shipyards, and, and that so maybe they. I think Hong Kong and Shanghai, and in that respect, they are they are authentic. Well, definitely, they they are authentic, and I think this is where Mazes demanding and exacting uh, attention to detail really comes in, because he really is looking for. Uh, the shipbuilders that were building the actual ships. And he's saying, now can you make a model? And, you know, part of his frustration was that there is nothing documented about these shipbuilding practices. And he said, you know, a lot of it is passed almost, you know, from father to son, or it's passed generationally within a shipyard. It's not documented. But he was using the same craftsmen, essentially. His concern was making sure it was accurate and the scientific accuracy in terms of how the, these models are being replicated. So definitely they're, they're being constructed in China with some supervision from custom staff who are doing this as a sideline, basically, because they've been instructed to um, by, their, by their boss. Mm. The colouring of them, I think, is fascinating. We should talk a little bit about this, I think, because um, I'll tell you what, let's talk about more broadly about the evidence that there other evidence that exists for junks, um, because... I've seen some wonderful black and white photos which were taken maybe towards the end of the 19th century of junks in, in major Chinese harbours. And you can just make out that they are decorated. But because they're black and white, you have no sense of the colour. So could you just tell me or talk a little about, about the, um, the painting of these junks? Well, the, the maze models are in particular really colourful. Some of them are really colourful. And when you look at the bow, the decorations are actually quite ornate. Uh, this, again, was Mazer's insistence on replicating what he'd observed or what his subordinates had observed. But I'm not sure in terms of if there is actually, if we can compare it to, say, black and white photos. I think we can in terms of some of the design. But Mays was very exacting in terms of wanting to replicate as closely as possible these ships. Mm. I suppose the, the problem there is that because they were built using oral tradition and, and ideas passed down from word of mouth that uh, I mean, we don't have very much idea about how these vessels were built do we unless we find wrecks is that right i would say that's a, a fair way of putting it unless you're in the shipyard and you're observing and i think this is partly what Mays was trying to ask his subordinates to do so he did have his staff trying to observe certain aspects of how ships were being made and then looking at how they were being made in terms of the, the model. But again, there's no interviews. What would be great would, to, would be having interviews with the shipbuilders or having documents which uh, really tell you the stories of these shipyards. And look, those documents may exist uh, in an archive somewhere in China, I'm not sure, but certainly within the documents that are held in the UK relating to the Maze collection, there are blueprints, there are some photographs, there are sketches, there are reports from staff, but there's the Chinese voice is, is pretty much absent. Yeah. It's a fascinating collection because it allows us to do two things. One, of course, is to look at the history of Chinese maritime technology. That was the that was the purpose of what why they were created. But in doing so, I think Frederick Mays maybe didn't notice that he was putting himself in a kind of a historical bubble as well. Because it also tells us about colonial perspectives on preserving uh, traditional foreign cultures. Tell us a little about that. Sam, I think you're right. But I would say that I think Frederick Mays maybe had a sense of what he was doing. If nothing else, he uh, wanted to create a sense of legacy for himself. And there are yeah. disputes that go on with... He tends to write to the museums, and this is where I found it 
uh, quite fascinating. He's writing to the museum, basically checking where his models would be displayed and whether he was satisfied with that or not, and the quality of the cabinets, for instance, and their positioning. So I think he did have a sense of wanting to preserve something and preserving a legacy, but it's also at a point at which he believed the Chinese Customs Service was being somewhat sidelined, or his role was perhaps not being appreciated as much as he felt it should be. So it really serves a dual purpose, you're right. Um, but it speaks. To, you're right that it speaks to the idea of this um, knowledge-gathering uh, maritime ethnography, if we want to see it in that way. All of the discussion of the idea of junks as a vanishing craft is something that emerges over and over again in documents of the time. And I think Mays is very much captivated by this idea that he's preserving something that the Chinese aren't, aren't aware of or aren't interested in preserving themselves, which is a very colonial attitude, actually. Even though technically the customs is not an imperial, you know, it's part, it's not part of empire, it is very similar when it comes to uh, imperial sort of attitudes and even the hierarchy within the customs service. It takes a long time for any Chinese to make it to senior positions within the customs, for instance. Mm. So it's quite similar to, say, the British Raj in some of the attitudes. Not all, but certainly you see elements of that. Does it fit into a broader picture of maritime ethnography in the 1930s? I mean, what was that, was, were other projects happening in Southeast Asia or, or elsewhere? There were other projects, and some of these projects are actually, again, sponsored by the Customs Service. So the Maritime Customs Service is actually producing a lot of knowledge on China, but with a maritime tilt. So the Customs itself, it, it has a statistical department, so it's publishing a lot of um, material, a lot of which is not being used within the Customs Service, but it's to generate knowledge on China. So there is, a, there is a figure, Worcester, George Worcester, who actually goes on to be a one of the editors of the Mariner's Mirror um, for many years. Um, he actually does a lot of work. One, he's deployed by Mays, but he actually writes on fishing, um, what he observes in terms of, and he actually sails on vessels up and down rivers and actually writes a bit about the lives of people on the water. So he would be one example. Um, the other would be Hornell, uh, James Hornell, who is, who is a naturalist, a biologist, a marine biologist, but finds work in Ceylon, and elsewhere in, Brit in the British Empire and tends to report on shipbuilding, maritime ethnography, and tends to write a lot on Asian shipping and shipbuilding techniques. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating picture and a fascinating period. I think we should come back and find out a little bit more about it. Um, tell us about your, uh, before we go, tell us about your recent work. What are you doing at the moment? Oh, that's, that is a good question. Um, what I'm doing <laughs> at the moment? Uh, well, I, two, two projects that interest me that, that have a link to the maritime. One would be a project with colleagues at um, the National University of Singapore where I'm working, which is um, we're calling the project Friction and Order, and it's looking at the Western obsession with trying to control, contain, and order China in the 19th century. So we're sort of returning to some sort of classic works in the field, but for me, I'm looking at the, the journalists and advisors Advisors who felt that they were, you know, giving advice and or direction on how Western powers could manage China as a newly emerging uh, power. So, so this is one project. We're all still coming together with this, so it's early days with this project. Um, 
I think other other projects, um, there's another project that I'm looking at, which is more to do with trade. So again, it links to the customs somewhat. And that, that is um, a collaboration with scholars from uh, throughout uh, East Asia and scholars based in the UK as well. And we're exploring trade and tariffs. And we know that trade wars are very much uh, in, the, in the minds of many people in contemporary times, but we're looking at historical precedents for this and saying, well, it's all well and good to impose a tariff or a trade restriction, but what does it look like on the ground? And just how messy and complex does it get for local officials when they're trying to deal with particular commodities? Uh, so, mm. so we're bringing together a lot of scholars and trying to unpack some of that complexity. Brilliant stuff. Well, I wish you the best of luck and I'd love to come back and talk to you more. I think you're doing some really interesting work. Donna, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. Many thanks for listening. Now, as always, please leave us a review on iTunes if you are listening on an iPhone. It makes all the difference to our mission to help more people learn about maritime history. Please also find us on YouTube, watch all of the videos, subscribe and like all of them. In the light of the recent tragedy of the submarine exploring the Titanic wreck, we made an animation looking specifically at the safety equipment on board the Titanic, and fantastic it is too. This podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation. In particular, please check out Maritime Innovation in Miniature. Just Google it. Maritime Innovation in Miniature. It's the Lloyd's Register Foundation's brilliant new project filming the world's best ship models with the latest camera equipment. And they've literally just published some wonderful footage of some ships filmed at the Stockholm Maritime Museum. The Society for Nautical Research you can find at snr.org.uk where you must join up. It's a brilliant way not only to find out about maritime history from the very best in the business, but also to meet new people. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.